Welcome to Historically Inaccurate Wholesome Heritage Moments with Megs, where I delve into extended cuts from my TikTok, Megs Reads Good. Here you'll get to hear your favorite stories as extended cuts with extra little tidbits of information along with my lukewarm takes. So grab yourself a Halloween-sized bag of your favorite candy and get comfortable because I have feelings. Today we're going to talk about Highcroft Manor. That's right, one of Vancouver's most notable landmarks. Highcroft Manor was built by General Alexander Duncan McRae. He built it for his family, including his first wife and his three daughters. Born in Ontario, General McRae was a military general, a World War I hero, and a future Canadian senator. His family first relocated to Vancouver in 1907, and they started work on Highcroft in 1909. The estate is located in the beautiful historic neighborhood of First Shaughnessy. It is 20,000 square feet. It has 30 rooms. It included a pool, a bowling alley. It had a full bar, compliments of Prohibition in Vancouver, a wine cellar, passageways that led to other buildings on the property, and underground tunnels that led to other houses in Shaughnessy. The approximate cost of the mansion back in the 1900s was around $110,000, which is approximately $3.3 million today, which isn't too shabby if you know what housing prices are like in this city. It was completed in 1911 after two years of construction. The architect of the mansion was Thomas Hooper, who was very in demand around this time. He happened to also be the architect on the Vancouver Art Gallery, who added the extended annex portion in 1914. I've got a video about the art gallery in case you missed it. Anyway, Thomas Hooper was also a very prolific architect in Victoria and is one of the best known architects from BC's pioneer era. He also might be partially responsible for some of the ghostly sightings around Highcroft, but we'll get into that later. The mansion also featured work from another frequent character in these Vancouver stories. The delicate plaster work throughout the entire home was done by one Charles Morega. Yes, you've heard of him multiple times. He did the lions at the Lionsgate Bridge, remember? He also sculpted the busts of Michelangelo and Leonardo at the front of the original Vancouver Art Gallery. Highcroft Manor, besides being known for its beauty, was also very well known for its legendary parties that General McRae and his wife held. One of their most prolific parties was the Masquerade Ball that they threw every New Year's Eve. The mansion saw visiting royalty, politicians, and social elite. You weren't anyone until you attended a party at Highcroft Manor. A mansion of that size, however, is difficult to keep up, and as we moved into the 1940s, McRae's daughters had married and moved out, and the manor was getting to be a lot for them to keep up, and so he donated, technically sold it, to the Canadian government for $1 to be used as a veterans hospital in 1942. It was called the Shaughnessy Millery Auxiliary Hospital. It mostly housed veterans of the Great War who required special care. It had its own morgue, and it served as a military hospital for 18 years until a new wing was added to the local hospital and the veterans were able to move in there. Year after leaving Highcroft, McRae's wife passed away, and 
He passed away four years later in Ottawa. After the veterans moved out of the mansion, it sat empty, save for a family of raccoons. And in 1962, the University Women's Club purchased it after it sat empty for two years. It took them almost five years to completely restore the property and the grounds back to their former glory. They paid $32,250, which would be around $307,000 in today's money, and they had to pay it in full as women weren't allowed to hold mortgages at the time. How adorable is that? So now let's get back to architect Thomas Hooper. In addition to him being a prolific architect, he is also sometimes referred to as the haunted architect as most of his buildings are reportedly very haunted. Now, there are many rumors and theories surrounding Hooper, but one of the darkest ones is that he belonged to a school of dark architectural beliefs in London, England, which is where he got his start. The group believed that every building required a resident soul if the building was to be successful. Because of this, they ensured that each project had someone join the building crew who was either older, had poor health, maybe was new to the country, or vulnerable in some other way, and were unlikely to be missed. This way, their demise would not be seen as suspicious. The chosen individual would meet their end either accidentally on the job site, or they would maybe just, you know, not show up for work one day, and the building would get its soul. Hooper passed away in 1935 at the age of 77 and had an incredibly successful architectural career. Now, several ghosts are reported to have been seen on property at Highcroft Manor. One ghost is dressed in a World War I officer's uniform and is thought to be the ghost of General McRae himself. Another apparition that appears is that of a well-dressed lady, and she is believed to be Miss McRae. She usually shows up during parties and other events. The bigger the party, the more likely she is to appear. One bride reported an uninvited guest at her wedding. When she described the visitor to staff, they assured her that this particular guest would not threaten her seating chart. One of the other reported ghosts is a woman in a nurse's uniform, believed to be the head nurse from when the mansion served as a veteran's hospital, and she tends to stick to the bedrooms where she would have spent her time tending to her patients. Other apparitions of three army veterans have been spotted in parts of the house, and they are known as the pranksters by staff as they like to open and close doors and make lights flicker. They like to stomp around the 20,000 square feet so people hear their footsteps. And they are known to tap people on the back. The final spirit is known as the crying man due to the loud sobbing that is heard from a room on the lower floor. Film crews have reported seeing entities in the mansion. A security guard on Catwoman said that he took photos on his digital camera that showed a white mist in the images. Other staff say that they feel cold chills when they enter certain rooms, the kind of energy that makes your hair stand on end. Now, I've been to Highcroft Manor a few times, and if you think I didn't take that opportunity to ask staff if they'd ever experienced anything, then you would be wrong. I asked one staff member, 
what it was like to work on property, and he told me that sometimes they would dare each other to go into the basement, and nobody really enjoyed being down there for very long. Now, there is one more ghost that reportedly roams the halls of Highcroft Manor, and that is the ghost of Janet Smith. Janet was born in Perth, Scotland, and, at the tender age of 21, she obtained a position as a nursemaid for the daughter of Frederick and Doreen Baker. Fred ran an import-export business, which took them to Paris and then back to Vancouver with Janet accompanying them and their young daughter. Now, the Bakers had another domestic servant in their employ, recent Hong Kong immigrant Wong Foon Sing, who was in his mid-twenties. One day, Wong was peeling potatoes when he thought he heard a car backfire. He looked out the window and saw nothing. He then went down to the basement and found Janet laying lifelessly on the floor. She had a bullet wound above her bright eye and a handgun lay next to her. Wong called his boss, Fred Baker, who came home and confirmed that Janet was, in fact, dead. Around noon on July 26, 1924, the Point Grey Police Department was called to the house at 3851 Osler Avenue, now Osler Street. They found Janet Smith in the basement with the bullet wound, and it was assumed that Janet had shot herself with a gun that belonged to the owner of the home, Richard Baker. Richard and his wife, Blanche, were vacationing in Europe at the time of Janet's death. Fred and his family were staying in the home while they were away. By the way, Blanche's former home was Highcroft Manor. Her father, General McRae. The first sign of tampering with the case was the fact that the body had been embalmed before it was autopsied. Both the coroner and the police had instructed the undertaker to embalm the body immediately. When the body got to the medical examiner, Dr. Hunter, he did what he could, but most of the evidence was destroyed during the embalming process. Now, Dr. Hunter found that there was no gunshot residue or burn marks around the bullet wound, which would be present if the gun had been fired at close range. There was no physical evidence surrounding the body, like blood spatter or other organic matter. Point Grey Police Constable James Green had also handled the gun improperly, picking it up with his bare hands, making it impossible to obtain fingerprints. Dr. Hunter also found that Janet's scalp had been partially separated from her skull and that her cranium was cracked, which was more evident of a blow to the head than a gunshot wound. Even though the evidence did not add up, Dr. Hunter did not conclude that there was any foul play. I mean, he determined that the manner of death was up to the coroner's inquest. Now, despite Dr. Hunter's concerns that were expressed during the inquest, a jury determined that the death was accidental. They chalked the head injury up to Janet's head, hitting the laundry tub as she fell to the ground. Since Janet's manner of death had been determined and was ruled to be accidental, Janet's remains were laid to rest. Now, Janet had two other nursemaid friends, Sissy Jones and Jean Haddow, who she would meet up with at Angus Park and go for walks. Neither friend believed that Janet would kill herself and claimed that she had been uncomfortable around the houseboy, Wong, who they believed to have a crush on Janet as he was known to give her gifts. The police had collected personal belongings from Janet's room, including a journal where she wrote about Wong gifting her a silk nightgown, but she did not seem to fear him. Sissy took her concerns to Reverend Duncan McDougall at the Highland Church on 11th Avenue. Now, the dear Reverend, he happened to be a little bit of a xenophobic preacher who was not a big fan of elites, Catholics, Jews, and 
also happened to support the KKK. He went to local Scottish societies and convinced them that one of their own had been savagely murdered, and in turn the United Council of Scottish Societies demanded that the BC Provincial Police reopen the investigation. Attorney General Alex Manson put Inspector Forbes Kirkshank on the case. He was a fellow Scot and head of the Vancouver Division of the BC Provincial Police. Once assigned the case, Crookshank turned to the private detective Oscar Robinson to get information on Wong Foon Singh. Robinson had tailed Wong around town, and on the evening of August 12th, Wong met two friends at the corner of Carroll and Cordova. While they were talking, two white men grabbed Wong and forced him into a car. They took him to Oscar Robinson's Canadian Detective Bureau on West Hastings, where Robinson and others interrogated Wong. Wong explained he had told the police everything. Robson replied by beating Wong well into the night, but when Wong's story failed to change, they finally released him. And because of this, Attorney General Manson agreed to have Janet's body exhumed and re-examined. The second inquest was more exhaustive than the first, and this time the jury found that Janet had been murdered. While the evidence supported that Janet did not take her own life, it did not point to a killer. As months went by with no breaks in the case, attention, of course, turned back to Wong. On March 20th, 1925, the Bakers reported that Wong was missing. It turned out he had been abducted again, this time by the KKK. Now, around this time, the KKK had been renting Glen Bray, the Shaughnessy mansion that sits on Matthews Avenue and currently houses the Canuck Place Children's Hospice. We all get our redemption tour. Even houses. It turned out that Wong's abductors hadn't actually been members of the KKK, though, but those who had adopted their costumes <laughs> for effect. They held Wong in a house on West 25th Avenue where they kept him chained up and tortured him for six weeks. Again, Wong's story never changed. After the six weeks, they kicked Wong out on Marine Drive, which is where he was found wandering, battered, and disoriented. The police took him into custody and, you're going to be surprised by this, not really, they charged him with the murder of Janet Smith. It was later found that Wong's kidnappers included two Point Grey police commissioners, the chief of police, a detective sergeant, and three prominent officials of the city's Scottish societies. Manson signed the warrant, but not based on actual evidence. No, he thought that holding a new trial would help him sift through evidence so he could find the actual killer. It turned out Manson had known about the second kidnapping all along, but did nothing about it in hopes that torturing Wong would solve the case. The Chinese community was outraged over the treatment of Wong, rightly so, but given that this happened during the exclusion era, that didn't really count for much. During this time, it was proposed that an exclusion bill should be passed that would forbid Asian men from working in the same home as white girls. It was called the Janet Smith Bill. Yeah, they, they went there. But before it could be voted into law, it was pointed out that based on the Anglo-Japanese Treaty from 1911, the BC legislature did not have the authority to enact such a bill. Wong's trial didn't last long as there wasn't any evidence against him, especially since, according to the jury, there wasn't even really any evidence that a murder had occurred at all. 
The consistent missteps taken by the police and the attorney general left little confidence in the minds of the public, and if the investigation did anything at all, it only further confirmed how corrupt the BC government was at that time. Wong ended up deciding that Canada wasn't the place for him after his acquittal and moved back to China, and without him, the Point Grey police lost their scapegoat and had little motivation to continue investigating the murder. Now, Janet's murder is still unsolved, but there are some popular theories about what did happen to Janet. There is a theory that she was murdered during a party held at the home on Osler the night before her death. People have described the party as a drunken, drug-fueled orgy. Now you know why I couldn't talk about this on the TikTok. It was said that the police were paid to make the case go away, and that's why they bungled the investigation so bad. One of the alleged witnesses of the party was a clairvoyant who claimed to have attended the function both physically and in her dreams. Now Fred insisted that there was no party that night. However... It is believed by Scotland Yard that Fred Baker was an international drug smuggler. They even arrested and charged him with these crimes, so he wasn't exactly the most reliable source. Now, in the novel Who Killed Janet Smith by Edward Stakins, I highly recommend this book if you're interested in this crime. I have read it. It is phenomenal. He recounts a story told to him by an elderly woman in the 1980s who shared a story that was told to her by an acquaintance in the 1930s. A little bit convoluted, I'm sorry. Now, Jack Nickel, the son of former Daily Province publisher and Lieutenant Governor Walter Nickel, gave a deathbed confession to said nurse acquaintance. Jack claimed to have attended a party at Osler Street. He said that he was romantically linked with one of General McRae's daughters, who caught him with Janet in the bathroom and freaked out. During the chaos that ensued, Nickel claimed that he accidentally knocked Janet down and her head smashed on a spigot, killing her. I've heard a similar version of the story, but in the version that I've heard, the murder occurred at Highcroft Manor. Janet was caught in a compromising position with the boyfriend of a McRae daughter, so similar. She was murdered there, and it is said that her body was then dragged through the tunnels beneath the streets of Shaughnessy to her home on Osler Street. It's alleged that Janet was shot on property at Highcroft Manor. And that that is why there was no evidence of gun residue on her person. There were no contact burns, which would have resulted from being shot at point-blank range, a suicide. There's also no physical evidence surrounding the body at Osler Street, which would also result from suicide. Never mind the head wound that Janet had also incurred on top of the bullet wound. This could also explain why Janet is said to haunt Highcroft Manor. Janet was laid to rest at Mountain View Cemetery. Her grave is marked with an obelisk erected by the Scottish Societies of British Columbia. The inscription on her headstone reads, Erected by the Council of Scottish Societies of British Columbia, In loving memory of Janet K. Smith, who met her death while in the bloom of youth at Shaughnessy Heights, on July 26, 1924, aged 22 years, one month, one day. On earth, one gentle soul the less, in heaven, one angel more. 
And if you ever find yourself at Mountain View Cemetery in the 1919 section, you will not miss the obelisk. It is very tall, but it also is shorn at the top to indicate a life cut short. And reportedly around the corner, there are coins that are left near her grave for the ferryman to ensure her safe passage into the afterlife. I hope you enjoyed that story and a little look into Vancouver's dark past. Next time you drive through Shaughnessy, maybe you'll think about the tunnels that lay beneath your feet. I hope you've enjoyed this and that I've made maybe your commute a little bit better. Until next time, thank you for being here. I appreciate you. You are the best. See you later.